Hi there, and welcome to our Hollowed Fruit Podcast. Here we will meet inspirational LGBTQIA persons whose journeys and practices illustrate the flowering and fertile possibilities for all of our souls. I'm Brian Anthos, a spiritual guide for pleasure and peace seekers. You can find out more about me at brianantos.com. Let's take a moment now to pause and find some quiet, and to consider again that we are a part of something larger than ourselves. As we begin, let us be at peace. Welcome to episode one of Our Hollowed Fruit. Today, we welcome realtor and tea snob Dan Ritter from Philadelphia. Hello, world. Hello, universe. And welcome to our Hollowed Fruit Podcast. I'm Brian Anthos, and I'm so excited today to welcome everyone and even more excited to welcome our very first guest, Dan Ritter. Oh, hi there. Hey, Dan. How do I begin to describe Dan to the world? <laughs> Let's see. Well, Dan is a husband to another amazing guy named Byron. Uh, Dan is a cat dad to Rowena and Salazar. He is an Episcopalian with Baptist roots. He is a self-described Star Wars fanboy. And I would have to add that Dan is the loveliest of tea snobs that I've ever known. I come by it honestly. And when he's not judging your choice of tea, Dan is a realtor for the best Philly Homes team at Keller Williams. How's that for an intro, my friend? Feels pretty good. It's kind of weird to hear it all spoken by someone else, though. Normally, you just say that walking around the house? Yeah, I mean, that's basically my whole elevator speech. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. I can imagine it, too. Byron will be happy that you let off with uh, Dan as a husband. <laughs> That's right. I, I proclaim that he's an amazing guy, too, like before I really said anything about you, if you think about it. so That's fair. That's truly, yeah, that's fair. Just trying to keep everyone happy here. So <laughs> Seriously, thank you so much for being here for episode one of Our Hollowed Fruit. So thank you, Dan, and welcome. Thank you so much, Brian. Happy to be here. So a common theme that I hope we will revisit time and time again here on this podcast is that of our spiritual journeys, our spiritual history, if you will, and discussing how these histories have shaped a bit of who we are today. Um, I would love for you to help warm up the airwaves today and share a bit of your spiritual history and why the spiritual journey is so important to you. Absolutely. And thank you again for having me on today. I'm really excited to do what we do often and just get to chat about our stories, um, about who we are, and how that informs kind of what we do in the world. Um, But thinking about our spiritual journeys, it's really important for me to give context 
in that I was born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama, in a very uh, conservative Southern Baptist home, full of love, full of life. My whole extended family lived within a couple mile radius, and we basically all went to the same church in our neighborhood growing up. Um, many, many fond memories of being a part of that church really established and grounded myself in my faith there in a lot of ways. And eventually over the years, um, went to a few different churches and landed in college. And while I was in college, I really began to look critically at my faith for the first time. So up until that point, until around 18, 19 years old, I had really just approached my faith purely through the eyes of my upbringing and the churches I'd been a part of to that point. And during college, I actually started studying theology uh, intellectually, academically, however you want to phrase that. And it was the first time I'd taken a really intentional look at what I believed. And it shook me a little bit, as it often does for people who, who have those moments of, of encountering, uh, looking at what they believe really closely. But over that process of digging deep and really trying to move from an inherited theology to a claimed theology. I learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about what it meant to be a person of faith. Thankfully, I ended up landing at a progressive Baptist church in Nashville, Tennessee, of all places and of all things. And as a member of that church, I went through the process of coming out, which is not a normal story for most LGBTQIA people that your pastors helped you come out. But thankfully, that is a really important bedrock piece of my story, of my spirituality and my spiritual journey. I was trying to figure out my sexual identity while also kind of still figuring out my spiritual identity and being able to process both of those simultaneously. I give a lot of credit to that for why even today, these years later, I still am able to say that I'm a person of faith uh, because those journeys happen very simultaneously. Uh, eventually, I moved to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And when I moved up here, there weren't a lot of progressive Baptist churches, at least not the kind that I had been a part of when I lived in Nashville and in Birmingham. And so I found my way to the Episcopal Church, I've always had a deep love for liturgy, uh, those really important rituals that happen week after week after week within the Christian church, especially when you look more toward uh, like the Episcopal church and, and more progressive liturgical churches. But I really, that's where I find the root of my faith these days is in those those rituals that happen week in and week out. And so I landed in the Episcopal Church, really resonated with me, but because I'm stubborn and I'd worked so hard on it, I still claim and attach myself a lot to my Baptist heritage and the things that really made the the groundwork, the bedrock of the faith I still claim today. I love it. And I've heard some of this story so many times, and it just <laughs> is still so beautiful every time. It strikes me, Dan, that no matter what other experiences you have and what else happens in your life, it really seems like that Baptist is still in you. And the faith and spirituality experiences of the past are still with you. I definitely agree with that. And 
it's interesting because for a time I rebelled really hard against that. I tried so many different ways to step away from uh, the Baptist things. And I use air quotes when I say that because a lot of the experiences I had before finding those more progressive Baptist churches were really harmful. Being a gay person, especially a closeted gay person in the South, trying to navigate what that looks like in this world that very overtly negates that part of you and says it's wrong or bad or sinful has a, a an effect on how you move forward in the world in a lot of ways, just like any types of trauma at various levels uh, can. But the spiritual trauma for someone whose identity for so long was bound up in their faith. I mean, growing up, my nickname, literally middle school, my nickname was Preacher Dan. This, this <laughs> assumption that my identity was bound up in the church. And then to so aggressively move against that or rub up against that for, for a while was really challenging. And it really made it difficult moving forward to find that space again. I think of uh, the late Rachel Held Evans, who is a prophet. <laughs> I recommend <laughs> reading everything she ever wrote. Um, but she has a book called Searching for Sunday that really speaks to... I mean, the whole thing is incredible, but there's this one quote in the book that really speaks to that. And she says, but perhaps the most unsettling thing about a new church is the way the ghost of the old one haunts it. For better or worse, the faith of our youth informs our fears, our nostalgia, our reactions, and our suspicions. And I think that's so profound because it speaks so much to this idea of um, especially for someone who's who is other, different from what the norm is in a church setting, navigating life as an adult when you learned all these things in childhood that uh, you want to carry forward, but you don't really know how to, and you try to re-engage for the first time. There are these traumas and these things that always come back and bubble over when you start that journey, and the the truth of it is those things never really stop. They never really leave you. Anytime you find yourself in that setting, you have some of those moments of, of fear, of trepidation. I think the important thing there is pushing through those things and remembering and holding on to, as I keep saying over and over, the bedrock, the groundwork that, that set the foundation for a continuation of faith in life. Uh, I love the, it's, it's, appropriate that we're talking about our hallowed fruits because I love the imagery and the metaphor of a tree and I will use that metaphor way too many times today while we talk because I think it is so perfect for talking about being a person of faith that has gone through these changes because the roots are so important and we don't really necessarily see them sometimes they're often very dirty and underground and dark but without those roots you can't have a strong tree and I think about my time growing up in those more conservative Baptist churches in the South as these roots that I don't really want to show everyone anymore these days. And they're maybe not what has grown from them, but they are essential to the health and the growth of me as the tree these days. Yeah. I mean, what a beautiful image, right? Roots. Uh, it's happened. And the, and the roots never leave. And without the roots, who are we? Right. I think, too, of, 
your choices and your choice to continue on this journey. You mentioned how many times you tried to either run away or just give up. And I think there's quite a few people who would say you should. Uh, There's nothing to gain from staying on this journey. Um, It's trying to control you. It doesn't respect who you are. Uh, Yet you've continued to go on this and continue to see so much fruit in your life from it uh, is what I hear. And just wonder kind of why? Why Why keep going on this when there's so many models of life without spirituality, without any kind of faith. Um, and maybe for many, because of hurt, maybe trauma, uh, it might be necessary to just stop and walk away. And that's fine too. Uh, but why for you do you get to this place and then want to keep going? That's a really good question. And I think it's kind of twofold. One part of it is I worked so hard to be able to still claim my faith. I did all that work academically. I engaged in these more progressive churches and gave them a chance and really pushed myself oftentimes to stay engaged with it, even when I didn't feel like it, when it didn't feel like what I want to do. I've often said I have a very cyclical relationship with the church because I'll have these great times where for a couple of years I'm hyper involved in a church and I'm on committees and I'm singing in the choir and doing all these things. And then I just reach a point where I'm like, I would like to sleep in on Sunday and have tea and cuddle my cats. And so I'll go through seasons where my relationship isn't with the church isn't as robust as other times. And So part of it is learning to accept that cycle and understand that that's very normal and that I don't have to be worried if I don't feel as connected or engaged during a particular season of time. Um, But the other piece, too, is being a person of faith is such a big piece of my identity. We talk about identity a lot in the LGBTQ community. We talk about the importance of claiming identity and and having control over your own identity and, and things like that. And they're very important conversations. But I think that there's a piece of that that applies to faith and spirituality too, especially for folks like me who grew up in it, whose sole identity for 20 years of life was church and Star Wars. <laughs> Those are the yeah. only two things to describe me for so many years. So it's it's one of those things where it's the reason I claim it and hang on to it and work so hard to do so is because still, despite everything that I've been through and experienced, being a person of faith, being someone who is spiritual is a major, major piece of my identity. Yeah, so that brings up a great point. So are there parallels Uh, of your coming out journey with your faith journey. I know that I tell people quite often we spend so much time and effort, oftentimes, to come out as gay. Uh, And then for so many, we have to seemingly come out again, this time as spiritual or religious person within the gay community. Yeah, that is basically my soapbox. So I'm sorry about the ramble that's about to happen. (laughs) But 
they inform each other, at least to me, they inform each other so much. So as much as they're parallels, they also have so much to learn from each other. So as an example, the church is very good at basic needs, meeting basic needs. That's why you have these incredible like clothing drives and toy drives and food kitchens and all these kinds of things that have stemmed from the church because the church at its very best, so let's call it its, its highest purpose, is very good at radical hospitality, meeting basic needs. On the flip side, you have the gay community, which is all about the celebration of the individual, which is wonderful. I mean, it's like, you go, girl. Like, you get it. You do your thing. Like, and we celebrate that. We celebrate that in the gay community in such a beautiful way. It's one of the reasons why you have this wonderful support for people as they figure out who they are within the gay community. And then they do, or get far enough in the process to start putting words to who they are. And the community is like, yes, get it, do that. Those are both really great things that the church and the gay community do. It can become a little toxic when it becomes overdone. So here, here's what I mean by that. Sure. The church, the church is great at the potluck and the meeting the needs, but there are barriers for entry that exist. For the church, you will always be invited to the potluck. There are no rescinded invitations to the potluck. <laughs> Everyone gets to eat. But if you, depending on the church, if you happen to be gay, you may not be fully accepted in the community. There are barriers to entry that are based on incorrect readings of the Bible. So there are these barriers that exist for full membership in the community. But if it comes to the basic needs... The church is going to get you. You're invited to the table for that food, even if you aren't invited to the table for communion, if that makes sense. Whereas the gay community, it, once you're accepted, it's like, yes, dance all night, meet up with their friends, go. You are, you are in the in-group. But the barriers for entry in the gay community are so much higher. You have to work so much harder to be accepted into a quote-unquote group or clique or to find that community. And to me... It's something that, that both communities can learn from. So the church could learn the whole, you go girl, you get it, you do you girl, from the gay community. Accepting people exactly like they are as their full selves. And the gay community could learn from the church in that everyone gets a seat at the table, the potluck. There's not this, this idea that you have to be at a certain level of something to be accepted communally. And... As much as I am a very out and proud gay man, that's something that really frustrates me within the gay community. And it's something, being completely transparent about, that I am guilty of within the gay community. Whereas my faith side is all about everyone is welcome to the table. So it's this idea that, yes, coming out in the church gave me a little bit of skewed perception on these things. But it also helps me see that there's so much both groups could learn from each other absolutely church meeting basic needs is such a beautiful idea and, and something to consider um, but then yes the so many churches feel this then need to then police individual lives uh, right. it's wild um, 
we spend years of coming out and for so many of us, many years, um, maybe many more than you or I spent trying to be welcomed by a place that seems mm-hmm. to have such moral authority, seems to have the highest connection to God, this supreme judgmental being sometimes telling us who we love is wrong. It's not proper. And telling us that our mission as men is to marry a woman, to have children, be fruitful and multiply. And we go through all of that, come out through what is often a painful coming out process. Right. Sometimes being told we're going to hell. And then you get to the gay community. As you point out, we're probably not going to get invited to the potluck or the fish fry right away (laughs) that the church is asking where I am. Right. And so that dissonance that you've helped us find today is helpful. By no means are we trying to complain about anyone or anything or any group of people, but I think it's just a reality that so many of us find ourselves in. Absolutely. Um, And I think dissonance is really important. I think dissonance is something that we ascribe too much discomfort to. We think that dissonance is bad or those places where things rub against each other are problematic, but not to be too metaphorical here, but I do think about how that's how mountains are made is when things push up against each other, when tectonic plates push up against each other and these mountains raise up and this beautiful new creation, this new feature suddenly exists in those tension points that could just as easily be earthquakes. So I think it's important for those of us who find ourselves in those tension points between things like the gay community and the church to really look for the mountains that can be made, then something new, as opposed to the things that could be broken down like an earthquake at those points. Yeah, absolutely. I I think of just a couple of nights ago listening to a couple of guys talk about one gay guy uh, wanting to help out in the community and asking uh, someone who is, you know, very active in the community, uh, hey, a group of uh, me and my friends, uh, we're looking for somewhere to help uh, over the holidays. Do you know of like any soup kitchens or clothes drives or toy drives that we can help with? And in the answer that he received, he was being given sort of all this like codified language too of, uh, you know, well, there's this soup kitchen, but, you know, they're very religious. Right. And I, I thought just how sad they might be religious. What does that mean? We don't know. And would they accept this person to help with their food drive and clothing drive? I, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer, but it's that's the dissonance. Mm-hmm. And here we have a person who wants to give back to the community And he's having to filter how he gives back to the community as to where he might be fully accepted to do that. Or or maybe so he thinks because of all of the past issues and traumas and judgment from churches and from religious communities. So it's I'm not sure that there's any one true person in the right or that knows everything, but we have to talk about this somehow so that we can be better people and build better communities. Well, I think we have to move beyond fault and blame too, which is really, really difficult because both communities are at fault. Now who started what that's a whole different conversation, but 
the church is at fault for creating an environment where people have to feel like outsiders and have to consider, am I going, am I going to be safe in this space or not? And that's on the church for creating environments that aren't safe. But it's also on those of us who are members of the LGBT community who are people of faith not being more vocal. And I don't mean being evangelical or proselytizing or anything like that. I have, I have left all that in my past. But I do mean having frank and honest conversations with the people that we are close to when they do say things that are harmful or um, untrue about the church uh, overall, because the the big church, the global church, it's easy to, to talk in broad strokes about. But for those of us who have been or are still part of communities of faith that are welcoming and affirming and do throw their doors open wide for anyone, it's really important for those of us who are part of those communities to speak to that and to push back and to get our hands a little dirty in that dissonance and and to just like we would if we were defending the lgbt community of someone who is a person of faith we have to be the people in the middle doing that work and while that can be tiring and while it can be frustrating to think it's contingent on us to have those conversations the thing that i always come back to is well who else is going to have those conversations if i don't I agree. And and I think, too, uh, look, if someone is not interested in a spiritual community, that's fine, too. Absolutely. But if the person, if someone is looking to go help their community and it happens to be a way to do it through a spiritual community, and it's just about the task and the activity, and as you said, providing for basic needs, right. then everyone should feel welcomed and not have to fear to go do that. To your point, it takes both sides to get through that fear and through that hesitancy. Right. And it's not, it, regardless of how we've gotten to this space, it has to be everyone to dig in and figure out how we go forward together. Right. And using the best of all these communities and all these spaces. And I think it requires a level of boldness that people are scared of. Boldness, not in a brash way, but I, I think about my church in Birmingham, Alabama, Baptist Church of the Covenant, which has been a welcoming and affirming church for many, many years. It was founded during the Civil Rights Movement, which is beautiful in and of itself. But several years ago, when I was still living in Birmingham, this church that had a large population of LGBTQ members and actively involved and engaged and well-loved, there wasn't this tension of like, is it okay that they're here or not? Everyone is on board. <laughs> it's a wonderful, lovely, welcoming community. But at that point in time, the church was still not hosting same-sex marriages. And whilst a couple of the pastors were doing weddings, they weren't happening in the church. And then one Sunday, out of the blue, the pastor preaches this sermon, and toward the end of it, she says, our church is happy to welcome our friend Rosa Parks and ask her to sit on the front row while we continue to ask our LGBTQ members to sit on the back row. Mm. And the point she was making is we still have work to do just because we are welcoming, just because we were founded during the civil rights movement doesn't mean that our work is done, that we still have to be continually engaged in making the doors wider and 
as a church, encouraging people to, you do you, girl, <laughs> to say everyone should be welcome in this space. And I think the more churches that have those conversations and, and lead with boldness in saying our doors are truly open for all, that's going to be the tipping point. Absolutely. Boldness, kindness, compassion, and just a, a space of welcome and a space for dissonance. Absolutely. To build the mountain, as you say. Yeah. We, we can do that. We absolutely can do it. So Dan, tell us a little bit about your spiritual practices. What keeps you grounded? What keeps you connected to that something else or something more? What can you share with us today? Yeah. So as I said earlier, I really connect with liturgy, with the ritual in my spirituality. In the Episcopal Church, that's often the Eucharist. Um, in the Baptist Church, it's the potluck or the fish fry. Um, these, these standard things that we do over and over again. In my daily life, it's actually making tea. So before I was a real estate agent in a past life, uh, for almost 10 years, I worked in the specialty tea industry. I know people have probably remember Tivana back in the day. So that was how I got started back then. But um, still to this day, my ritual, the place that I personally have this spiritual connection is when I make tea. As we alluded to, I am a tea snob. So I make it very traditionally. I have a cast iron teapot. I have loose tea, I have a water boiler, and I take this time out of my day every day to just stop and prepare tea. I put away my phone, I put aside any work I'm doing, and I heat my water to the correct temperature for tea, because every type of tea has a correct temperature. Oh my goodness. Sorry to dork out, I know. Uh, but you pre I prepare the water, I pick out the tea, I steep the tea for the correct amount of time in the teapot, and then I enjoy a pot of tea. And it's such a simple thing, but it's the same every time. It is a true ritual that makes me stop during my day to reflect, to disengage from all the other things requiring my attention, and to have a moment of peace and intentionality. It's so beautiful, and the connections, yes, from ritual and your litur liturgical upbringing, we might say. Um, I think again to the tree image mm. and think about the roots uh, that have built this tradition and this practice for you today. And, you know, maybe growing up and being in church on Sunday with your family, no one anticipated that this sort of learning of ritual and appreciation of it would lead to a spirituality of tea, if you will. Yeah. Um, but how beautiful. And without that experience growing up and without people around you to um, just embrace the idea of ritual, I'm not sure you have a tea ritual today. Well, that and I think much like most ritual in a spiritual context, whatever it is, whatever faith tradition, even something that isn't something you would think of as, as faith, so not everyone would think of tea as a faith tradition or anything like that. But <laughs> the, the things that are very personally spiritual are in many ways corporately spiritual too. So when I think about tea, when I make tea, I think about all the people I've shared tea with in different capacities over the years and how it has impacted my life. So I think about my very first store I ever worked with and the wonderful people 
that I worked with that I'm still friends with, every time I make myself a pot of tea, I am connected to those people. I am connected to the people that I've met over the years at tea conventions, because it's a thing. Um, and just this interconnectedness that comes out of that simple ritualistic spirituality that I do by myself on a daily basis, especially in this time of, of COVID-19 when we are recording this and there's still quarantining and lack of travel, not being able to see people we love with regularity, having that moment in the day that connects me to those people, even if they don't know I'm doing it, brings me this sense of wholeness and a sense of peace. I would also throw out there to anyone listening that if you're ever with Dan and you go to make a cup of tea and you even get close to the microwave to make your water, don't. Why would you use a microwave to boil water? I just don't understand. You can't control the temperature. Well, you have wow, to get your... that was that was that was a moment. I'm sorry, folks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can't see me, but Brian watched my face go red. <laughs> But I know how to do that, so... That's fair. So the theme of this podcast, the title of the podcast, Our Hollowed Fruit. What are your hollowed fruit, Dan? Um, I think about the Genesis line that I mentioned earlier, be fruitful and multiply from the book of Genesis. It gets thrown around in so many people's faces so unfairly with no real theological understanding so many times of what it meant or what it might be meant to mean or could mean. It so often is put out there as you're supposed to go get married to the opposite sex and have children. And anything less than that is not good enough. And you're less of a human being and less in the eyes of God. But as we think about our lives and you think about your life, what are your fruits what are your hallowed and sacred fruits and gifts to the world? That's a great question. Um, I definitely love that you bring up that passage of scripture of the be fruitful and multiply. The, to me anyway, the true message of the creation narratives is to live into creation. And in that example, the idea was to grow creation through multiplying with children and whatnot, whatever. But the real message that to me, the thing that's most important there is really connected back to this phrase that came to me when I was in the process of coming out. And it is, inhabit the fullness of your creation. To me, that's such a personal concept is is what your creation can be not who you were created to be not like so take the take the church component out of that but inhabiting the fullness of your creation what is it that you were meant to be what was the purpose that brought you into this life how are you being fruitful and multiplying the good around you the creativity around you whatever it looks like what what is your purpose in that and i think the the fruit that i bring to that what what helps me inhabit the fullness of my creation is my belief that the church and the lgbtq community can reconcile i still have that hope it's really pervasive that these these dissonant things 
can find commonality and that there can be a reconciliation between them. And I think that starts with that simple idea of inhabiting the fullness of your creation. So being the truest form of who you can be. I think about, you know, a great example to embarrass you a little bit is the conversations we've had all year this year as this dream of yours has come to fruition. As we've we've seen you realize that you're finally doing something that's at the intersection of what you love and what you're good at. And to me, that is what inhabiting the fullness of your creation is. It's finding that place where you can do what you love. And I would say, like I said, my my hallowed fruit is thinking that that's possible for people, I guess, that that, that place exists for everyone. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I think the word that comes to mind for me when I think of you is belief and belief in yourself, belief in your family, your husband, belief in your friends like me. Uh, and the, yes, the many wonderful conversations that we've had over the years uh, on these very topics, uh, belief in the communities that we spoke about. I believe that you believe in the gay community that we can do better mm. uh, and a belief that it will happen a belief that there's something to be valued in a faith community and in a spiritual life and that it's possible for people to find this connection. Uh, and you do that in an inviting and, and lovely way. I appreciate that. So we will often end these podcasts with just a little joy and gratitude. <laughs> and so for some joy, I have some Fun, surprising questions for you. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Get ready. Great. So, Dan, you can spend an evening with a fictional character. Could be an actual person or animation. Who do you spend it with and what would you do? Oh, that that's good. That's a good one. Oh, gosh, this is so basic. I'm so sorry, but... Princess Leia Organa from Star Wars. Oh, wow. I think that she is the most important character in all of Star Wars. And as a certified all-in Star Wars dork, being able to spend an evening with some tea, sitting around just talking about all the beautiful things and all the struggles and overcoming all the struggles. Uh, I won't go into my very long-winded treatise on why Leia is so important, but she is. And I think um, I would love to have that fictional conversation. And I also, I think that is definitely colored by the fact that I, one of my greatest regrets is that I never met Carrie Fisher while she was alive. Mm. And I still wish that, I could have made that happen while she was still around. So, so definitely Leia Organa. Fill in the blank. Oh gosh. The Mandalorian is a good dad. (laughs) I just watched the season two finale this morning before we recorded this. So I can't really say anything because no spoilers, but a good dad. Oh my goodness. That's so sweet. That's not where I thought you would go with that, but that's just Dan being Dan. And I love it. (laughs) 
he is. He's a good father. You're right. Yeah. He just wants what's best for Grogu. We'll have to do a whole other podcast just on the Mandalorian. I am here for it. You name the date and time. <laughs> Excellent. Two words that describe your husband, Byron. Oh, gosh. Well, first and foremost, brilliant. He is too smart for his own good. Um, no, he's, he's very, very smart. So brilliant definitely comes to mind immediately. And then the other word is home. And I say that because like all couples, we have our little like cute things we say about each other. And I'm always like, oh, my heart, you're my heart, you're my heart. Because he is. As someone who has moved around quite a bit over the years and has a very close relationship with my family, home has always been my family because all the places I've lived have been very short until I landed in Philadelphia. And when we are writing our vows, Byron wrote for his vows that while he is my heart or while I am his heart, sorry, he is my home because the truth of it is wherever we are, when we are together, I feel at home. You guys are too cute. We don't mean to be. We just come by it honestly. All this honest talk from you today. I don't know. (laughs) Dan, any for everything, (laughs) any gratitude that you would like to share in closing today? Yeah, I think it's really important to call out by name, these places that allowed me to be me in order to, allow me to hang on to my faith. So I think about Glendale Baptist Church in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, this great community of weirdos, and they would love that. (laughs) It's just this (laughs) random conglomeration of people who decided to come together and say, let's let's do this work together. And they do it so beautifully and so genuinely. And it's the church that helped me come out. Interestingly, interestingly enough, they're in Nashville, Tennessee, but because of COVID, I've been able to reconnect with them during the last few months over Zoom church, and it's been really such an incredible blessing to, to join with them again. And I also think of Baptist Church of the Covenant in Birmingham, Alabama, another incredible welcoming church um, in these places that you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, deep southern city here's a faith community, a Christian faith community that is fully welcoming and affirming of LGBT people, of people with, who are, who are othered, who are different, who are at the margins. And these two churches say, sure, why not? And I just think that they are the future of this whole conversation we're having of how does that reconciliation happen between these two communities? Churches like BCOC and Glendale are, are the future of that conversation. And I, am, I will be eternally grateful for the entirety of my life for those two communities. Dan, thank you again. Um, I can't wait to do this again as the podcast continues to grow. I hope you'll continue to come along on the journey with us. And yes, we will have to do a whole Mandalorian episode just for you. Sign me up for all of that, please. 
And thank you to everyone who has listened today. Again, I am Brian Anthos, and you can find me at brianthos.com. That's B-R-Y-A-N-A-N-T-H-O-S.com. And Dan, if someone would like to get in contact with you, where can they do that? Well, most of what I do these days is real estate, but you're happy, I'm happy for you to come along that journey with me uh, as it's never just real estate. But you can check me out at my website, www.danritterhomes.com, D-A-N-R-I-T-T-E-R-H-O-M-E-S.com. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, both at danritter underscore R-E, D-A-N-R-I-T-T-E-R underscore R-E. There's quite a bit of tea on that social media, too. Yeah, there is. It's, okay. like I said, it's not just real estate. There's also cats. There's tea. As described, you'll find him on social media. Come check me out. Thank you to everyone who has come along on the journey today. And until next time. <laughs>